That's a great song to sing right before opening the word. I love it because now we get to open up those ancient words. You can go ahead and find your place in your copy of God's word to Daniel chapter 9. We're truly looking at some ancient words today. These, these words were penned in approximately 538 B.C. 538 B.C. And not all of these words are fulfilled. We're going to look at several of the words that have been fulfilled. And that's exciting. And I don't know um, most of you. It's been great getting to know you, by the way. It's uh, a church that I'm not very familiar with. And, and so it's really, truly been a, bl- a blessing for my, myself and my family as well. We are looking forward to not getting up quite so early next week, though. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 24 to 27, the 70 weeks prophecy. And uh, most of this prophecy has actually been fulfilled, but there's a portion of it that still remains fulfilled. I would contend this is, if not the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament, it is one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's my privilege to be able to open God's Word and and work through that with you this morning. If you could follow along in your copy of God's Word as, as I read Daniel chapter 9, we are going to read through the whole chapter. Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse eight. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because... We have sinned against them, or against him. 
He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What a prayer. May we pray a prayer like that. We're not done, but that's the end of the prayer. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here we go. Seventy weeks, verse 24, seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, and, but in a troubled time. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Lord, we have sinned. You are righteous. Have mercy, Lord, and forgive us. As we work through Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, Lord, I pray that we would have a a greater estimation of you, how great you are, how faithful you are. I pray that you would speak to us through these ancient words, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's faithfulness. We are looking today at a a faithful God. We see that God is faithful through prophecy. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit more academic in nature. A lot of people see this dichotomy between academics and application or living out God's word. That is a false dichotomy. Some, I would contend, it was... It was actually, I was studying through Ezekiel chapter 1. I was working on a PhD project where I had to present a a Hebrew exegetical analysis of Ezekiel chapter 1. And I was preparing for this assignment. And studying through the throne room of God was just so, um, it just brought me to my knees. And it literally did. I would contend that that was the first time that I really worshipped God in a way that I had never worshipped God any time previously. And what was I doing? I was parsing verbs, analyzing Hebrew words, and doing all of these academic things. Through academic, intellectual work, you grow in your sanctification. You should. This is supported by Scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, what does it say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, if you're studying God's word and it's an academic exercise, or only an academic exercise, we're missing something. You need to be also, it needs to be affecting you. It needs to be changing you. I believe that true biblical affections, true biblical change starts in the mind and then it, it doesn't stop there. It, it extends down to your heart and your very being so that your heart changes. Who you are changes. That's kind of a longer conversation. As you go through your Christian life, what do you, you need to do? You need to think. And you might be thinking, oh, I'm not a thinker. I don't have a PhD. Oh, I didn't have a PhD. I was a C Hebrew student. Now I teach it. (laughs) I tell my students that, you know, they're struggling away. I was a C Hebrew student. I just knew I didn't know it well, so I just kept taking it. And I took it again and again and again. And then then I got it, okay? I I don't come from a family of smart people. Uh, Some of you may know the Littles, Dave Little, Steve Little. My Uncle Dave always joked around, I don't know where you got your brain from. It's not from our side of the family, you know? And my, my grandpa and my mom's side of the family, there's a little bit maybe more there. But anyway, <laughs> he would say that too. <laughs> but I'm not some super smart academic individual. You don't know how smart you are until you test yourself, until you push yourself. Who knows? Maybe you could learn Hebrew. Maybe you could be a future pastor. Maybe you could be, okay, whatever it might be. You could be the next one to play the organ. Right, Wyman? All right? 
<clears throat> let's, let's, pursue, let's pursue this intellectual renewal. And, and that's my introduction for this sermon, as I'm going to look at the, the faithfulness of God. And it's going to be a little bit more intellectual. I pray that, while maybe being a little intellectual, I pray that you are put in awe of our great God. Let's glorify him this morning. How great is the Lord's faithfulness? We're going to look at three examples of the Lord's faithfulness. The first example of the Lord's faithfulness is in regards to man's sinfulness. In spite of man's sinfulness, the Lord is faithful. Now, as I read through the prayer of uh, Daniel... I I tried to emphasize, you know, we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned again and again and again. And when we look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, a lot of times we think, ooh, the big prophecies, okay? But what does it start out with? Look at Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, okay? Your people, that's Israel. Your city, your holy city, Jerusalem. Right? Then we have these six infinitives. One, to finish the transgressions. To put an end to sin. To atone for iniquity. Three of the six have to, they, they discuss sin. You see, God hates sin, and we don't have a hatred of sin like we need to have. And in spite of man's sinfulness, God is still faithful, and we see that throughout Daniel's prayer. So I know we're kind of skipping Daniel's prayer, but we're not going to skip Daniel's prayer. So we're going to go back and look at some of it. I have three subpoints under in spite of man's sinfulness. There are three reasons that the, that the Lord is faithful in spite, of, in spite of man's sinfulness, and we're going to derive these three reasons from Daniel's prayer. So first, though, I want to talk about a little bit of history. In uh, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3, or I'm sorry, 2, we have, we have, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years, okay? And so here's Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. We have this prophecy about the 70 years in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. The Babylonian uh, kingdom would last 70 years and the captivity of Israel would last 70 years. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. What does it say? In the first year of Darius... What does that mean? Who's no longer in power? Babylon. And so he's like, hey, the time's up, or it's coming up. And this is a bit of debate. You know, there's like three conquests of Jerusalem. Which one is it? And we're not going to get into that. But this is the foundation of the 70 years prophecy is this text. Now, as we continue to work through this passage, this 70 weeks passage, um, and as we look at the sin, that's right, okay, so the reasons, why is it that God is, uh, is faithful in spite of man's sinfulness? The first reason is because of his mercy. In this passage, I've already emphasized all the readings of we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned. Four times we have that phrase. And that's not the only time that we see the, words, uh, the word sin. We have even the noun occurring in verse 16. We see it again in verse 20. And of course, in verse 24, we have put an end to sin. 
The Lord is merciful. What is the, what is the uh, opposite end of that sin? It's the Lord's mercy. And maybe you didn't catch that as we worked through this passage. We have these pleas for mercy. Look at Daniel 9 and verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy. Some of your translations may translate that supplications. The word is related to the word for grace. So you have these gracious uh, pleas for God's grace on the one hand, and then you have specific pleas for mercies. Look at Daniel 9 and verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy. What is the basis for Daniel's prayer? It's because we know we were wrong, Lord, and now we are righteous. Please take us back to Israel. Not the right answer. It's because of God's mercy. It's his character. It's who God is. The Lord is merciful. Second, we see the second reason is that the Lord listens. We did not listen. I love this one. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. We have not listened. Look at verse 10. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And then in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And then in verse 14, at the very end, we have not obeyed his voice. Okay, okay. Do you get it? They didn't listen. But guess what Daniel's doing? He asks God, God, we didn't listen. But God, please listen. (laughs) He's praying and he says, God, please listen. Isn't that amazing? It's something for us to think about. You know what? I've sinned. I didn't listen. I disobeyed again and again and again. But Lord, because of your mercy, please listen. Please listen. So the second reason is that uh, the Lord listens. Now we're moving on to the third reason. And the third reason I think is the big one. It's because of the um, the Lord's reputation. The Lord is faithful in spite of man's sinfulness because his reputation is what's on, at stake. The first song that we sang, it talked about the name of the Lord. The Lord's name, that's his reputation. The name of the Lord is found in verses 15, 18, and 19. Look at verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. See that? Listen, God, listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. Do you see the basis of Daniel's plea? It's because, God, look at your reputation. And the nations, they're mocking. So, Lord, please do this. Forgive and bring us back into the land. The name of the Lord. The Lord fulfills his promises for his own name's sake. And the Lord is going to fulfill his promises for his own name's sake. The past faithfulness of the Lord is the basis for the future faithfulness of the Lord. As you think about how God has been faithful in the past, you should be encouraged, believer, to know he will be faithful in the future. So the first way in which the Lord has been faithful is, uh, in, in the first example of the Lord's faithfulness, I'm sorry, is, uh, is in spite of man's sinfulness. The second example of the Lord's faithfulness is in the details, and this is going to be the crazy part. Here we go. Ready? Whew. Into the prophecy. 
So we have the six things that are accomplished, the three that I didn't deal with, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. These will be characteristics of the millennial kingdom. And that would be the termination of Daniel's 70 weeks, would be the inauguration of the millennial kingdom of our Savior Jesus the Messiah. Now it says in Daniel 9, in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now I want to deal a little bit with the translation here. I'm reading from the ESV, and some of your translations um, probably read, Uh, to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one. They may translate that instead, to the coming of Messiah, a prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, that's actually a better translation. Seven weeks, the ESV has, then for 62 weeks, all right? That's another alternate way that you could translate the Hebrew here. But even my ESV Bible here, it says down here in the margin, or there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? So I'm not going to get into all the Hebrew and explain it all to you, okay? We're just going to go with seven weeks and 62 weeks. It's actually an important part of the details of uh, the, this uh, prophecy. Now, as we begin this, there's three uh, preliminary things I want to talk about. First, I want to encourage you to think. I want to encourage you to study, So I have a couple of books that I put up here. The one book is called The Coming Prince. The author is Sir Robert Anderson. This was written a long time ago. It was originally written in 1894, and then it was republished in 1918. This is probably the seminal book that began the discussion of the Daniel 70 Weeks prophecy because uh, Sir Robert Anderson, he, 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 he was responding to critics. A Jewish man said, yeah, like that prophecy in Daniel, the 70 weeks. What a joke. You Christians can't explain that thing. He's like, what? Yes, we can. And so he did it, and he kind of laced it out. So I'm building off of his research, and this would be a great book for you to read, and you'll learn a lot from it. This would be the one that I'm going to be presenting to you, essentially, um, Harold Honer's view, chronological aspects of the life of Christ. As we work through this, we're going to be dealing with a lot of stuff that's not in the Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I study the Bible, not calendars. And so I'm going to do my But I would encourage you to study out some of these things. It'd be really, it's a really fascinating study. I think I've got it figured out, all right? But, but I'm not a chronologist, I'm a theologian. I'm an exegete. And so I know what the text says, but this is a fun study, and I would encourage you to do that. Okay, so in chronological aspects of the life of Christ, Harold Honer works through some details, including the date that Jesus died. Have you ever wondered that? I wonder when Jesus actually died. Now, as I work through this, I want you to understand that not everybody disagrees. What I'm going to explain to you is what's right, and everybody else is wrong. (laughs) 
you go ahead and you study it out yourself and, and if you're thinking and working through it and if you come up with a different day, hey, that's okay. Jesus did die. We know that was a historical fact. I think it's fascinating that we can look at it from this accurate of a perspective. Now, there's a couple of things that I'm going to talk about that are debated. For example, Jesus died on Friday. I'm going to assume that. I don't have the time to walk you through and explain why I believe Jesus did die on Friday. I know for many of you, it's like, well, of course he died on Friday. We celebrate good Friday every year, right? <laughs> well, actually, I believe Jesus died on a Thursday for a very long time. And it wasn't until a deeper study, and it was Harold Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, that, that persuaded me that Jesus actually died on a Friday instead of a Thursday. So I, wouldn't be, I know some of you have really studied out Scripture, and you might believe that Jesus died on a Wednesday or a Thursday. I'd encourage you to go after that, study it out. I'm going to assume that Jesus died on a Friday. Second assumption that I'm going to make is that Jesus died on Nisan 14, though I don't think this one's much of an assumption because Exodus kind of, you know, sets us up for it. Uh, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 6 states, you shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And what day was he killed? He was killed on Nisan 14, because he was the Passover lamb that year. Now, using some chronology stuff, we can look at the lunar cycles, and this is the part that I'm leaning on others for. Astronomically, Nisan 14 landed on a Friday in AD 27, 30, 33, and 36. So Jesus must have died in one of those years. Now, some would contend that Jesus died in A.D. 30. I think they're wrong. You can read Harold Honer. I'm going to contend that he died on the year 33. We can't get into that conversation. I'm sorry. It's fascinating. But we can look then at the lunar cycle and we can compute the actual day that Jesus died. He died on Nisan 14 of 33 A.D. And that was April 3rd of A.D. 33. I think that's just kind of cool to think about. You know what? That's the day my Savior died. Now, we're about to look at calendars a little bit, and we're going to realize their calendar system didn't work the way ours did, but it's almost like, man, shouldn't there be a holiday or something? <laughs> On that day, April 3rd, AD 33, our Savior died. Okay, now we're going to um, look at the prophecy some more. These were the preliminary matters, the date of Jesus' death, now we have to look at the beginning of the prophecy in Daniel's 70 weeks. First of all, what's the beginning date for this prophecy? What does the text say? Look at Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy, Daniel 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build the temple. No, that's not what it says. Restore and build Jerusalem. This is where a lot of people mess things up because we have several decrees about the temple in the Old Testament. Those aren't the beginning point. This is a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. We have a decree uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2 
where there was a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We can actually get that date. There it is. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So what was the 20th year of King Artaxerxes? Well, that's a bit of a question too. You can read Harold Honer for the details. I'm going to tell you. It was 444, 455 BC. We're going to go with the 444 one. Nisan 1 of 444 BC. That was the date when the decree went forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. March 5th, 444 BC. Again, using the lunar calendar. Now, as we work through this chronology and work through some of these details, we have to learn something about our years. Does anybody know the name of our calendar? Like, like the, the, the name of the calendar that we use today? The Gregorian, I heard it, okay? We use a Gregorian calendar. And that Gregorian calendar was put into place in the 1500s. It was Pope Gregory that instituted it. And it's really complicated. You know, every, every four years, there's a leap year. Every 100 years, there's not a leap year. But every 400 years, you're not supposed to have a leap year, but you do have a leap year. It's like super complicated. But that's what has to happen because otherwise the seasons get all off. And in the 1500s, they're like, man, these seasons are all messed up. We're like 10 days off here, okay? Spring's coming too early and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So then they created and added 10 days and fixed it and so on and so forth. Well, they didn't use the Gregorian calendar, people. So what is a year? Here we go. More details. What is a year? An ancient year was 360 days, 12 30-day months. We see this in ancient India, Persia, Babylonia, Assyria, Egypt. We see this in ancient Greek, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. The limit of life for a man I lay down at 70 years. And then he explains what 70 years are. The 70 years gives 25,200 days, not reckoning for any intercalated month. And you're like, oh, okay, so what's 70 times 360? Oh, it's 25,200. I know, I know. You might want to get out your phone and do some of the math. Okay, don't get distracted with any you know, fantasy football changes or whatever, but, you know, we're going to be doing a bunch of math here, and you can check my math if you want, or you can look at it later, blah, blah, blah. But isn't it interesting, he mentions the intercalated months, because you have to add, they add a month every once in a while, and he's like, those are separate, and look at it, it says at the end, um, well, I'll just keep reading. Then if every other one of these years shall be made longer by one month, that the seasons may be caused to come around at the due time of the year, the intercalated months will be in number 5 and 30, besides the 70. See, that's besides the 70. And of these months, the days will be 1,050. Do you see that? He has 70 years, and it's 25,000 some days. But then he adds more days for the intercalated months. That's the kind of prophecy that we have here. And so when it's referring to a year, it's referring to 360 days. 360 days. So the beginning of the prophecy was March 4th, 444 BC, March, uh, March 5th, 444 BC. That was the beginning. And now we have this prophetic year, 360 days. This is proved also in the scripture. We see it time, uh, several times. In Daniel 7.25, our text last, last week, we had time, times, and half a time. Well, what's that? That's one year, two years, and then half a year. 
One plus two is three, three and a half. Three and a half years. Revelation 13, five says 42 months. How many, how much time is that? 42 months says three and a half years. 1,260 days. How long is that? That is three and a half years, but in days. 360 days per year. Daniel 9.27, half of the week. What's half of a week? Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. So the year that's being used in Daniel 9.24-27 is a 360-day month year. Here we go. So how many days do we have? And that's what we can do. We can calculate the prophetic days. Prophetic years, I'm sorry, 483 prophetic years times 360 days totals 173,880 days. And this is what, what uh, um, Sir Robert Anderson, he was the first one to do this, and everybody was like, whoa! And then Harold Honer came along, and we had better instruments for computing astronomy, and he refined it a little bit. <laughs> And it's going to add up to something, and you'll see what that is. Solar years, we're just going to use the mathematical formula instead of doing all the leap years and all that jazz. 476 years times 365.242198789 equals 173,855.286 days. We're going to get rid of the remain those 2.286. We have an extra 25 days. So what's 476 years after the prophecy here? Isn't this amazing? I just was like blown away when I first studied this thing out. And it's just like, they are actually going after this stinking day. Where is this thing going? Where is it leading? And I know some of you probably already studied this out and you may know where it's going. But it's just like, wow. But this is our God. He knows the end from the beginning. In 700 and whatever BC, he said, Cyrus is going to be the one to rebuild my temple. Everybody's like, who's this Cyrus guy? You know, well, they didn't know he was. And then guess who prophesied or declared, go rebuild the temple? 200 years later, by the way, Cyrus did. He was the one. And this is our God. And he just laces this thing out here right to the very day. And just like God has been faithful to fulfill his promises in the past, in the very details he will be faithful to fulfill his promises in the future. So 25 days, what do we have here? Let's see where this, uh, see where this takes us. So I've labeled this the 69 weeks. Um, and the first date is March 5th, 444 BC. We have to add 476 years. And I know some of you have already done the math and you're like, hey, we're off a year. That's because we don't have a year zero. On our calendar, it goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. There's no year zero. Okay, so if you compensate for that, then you get March 30th, AD 33. Oh, wait a minute. You thought it was going to go to the crucifixion, didn't you? No, it doesn't. It can't even. Because what does it say in Daniel's prophecy? Look at this. What does it say in Daniel's prophecy? So we have the seven weeks and 62 weeks there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. In verse 26, and after that, the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. 
But whoa, 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 what was that preposition there? After. It's not the crucifixion. So where is this thing going? What happened on March 30th, AD 33? Let's take a look. Here's the calendar. It corresponds to our calendar. And you're like, oh, that was like Monday. Okay. March 30th was Nissan 10. Nissan 10 AD 33. What happened on Nissan 10 AD 33? And there's, you're going to read more on this. I'm just going to give you a snapshot a little bit, but I'm going to go to the Bible because I like the Bible, okay? And I'm a student of the Bible. What did it say in the prophecy of the Passover lamb? In Exodus 12, 3 through 6, it says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb and you shall keep it until the 14th of the month. And, you know, I was reading even some commentaries, and I'm like, man, what does some of these, com- especially these liberal commentaries that don't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures and stuff, what did they say about this, this prophecy? And, you know, this one guy, he said, why they had to bring the lamb in on the 10th day is anybody's guess. <laughs> in other words, you got no idea. We don't know. But on the 10th of Nisan, somebody came into Jerusalem. That was the date of the entry of the Messiah. What does it say in in Daniel chapter 9? Let's read verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, Prince Messiah. Okay? So that is when Messiah Prince is coming. It's the triumphal entry. That was the date that Jesus came in on the donkey. Luke 19, 37 through 44. I'm going to read through this. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see the description there? He's the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They didn't get it. He was the king. And this was his time. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Nothing's stopping this. And when he drew near and saw this city, what did he do? He wept. Verse 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another Uh, in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God himself had visited and they missed it. This prophecy that was prophesied years in advance, 483 years, lunar years, 483 years in advance had come true and they missed it. Here was the king. He was stood before them Four days later, they crucified him. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. He'll have nothing. 
So we've looked at the details. That was the details of the past prophecy. The Lord Jesus came, they missed his coming, and they crucified their Savior, our Savior. The one that could have brought peace, they killed. And now what do we have? Now critics of... (laughs) I have a friend, and he believes that there is not going to be a millennial kingdom of Jesus, okay? And uh, I remember taking him to this passage, and I'm like, how do you handle this? And he's like, well, you've got this big gap between weeks 69 and 70, called the church age. That's what we're in right now. And he's like, how can you have this great big gap there? It doesn't make any sense. Now, what does it say in the text? Let's look at these ancient words. (laughs) Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, the 70th week will resume immediately. No. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, part of the problem is that we think of these 69 weeks and these 70 weeks as weeks. And of course, with us, when we think of weeks, what happens? One just comes right after the other. By the way, if you haven't figured it out, we're going to go over today, okay? So I still have a little ways to go. (laughs) They're not weeks. That's an English word that we've used to try to put this thing together. It's technically 77s. They're just units of seven. Boom, 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 boom. Now, the first 69, they're all sequential. And it's just, it says that. It's seven weeks and 69 weeks. Boom. But then you have another Seven. And that last seven, it is still future. And it alludes to that here in the text. Because what do we have in 26? After the 62, then the Messiah is cut off and he'll have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Well, when did that happen? That happened in 70 AD. Okay, we're like several years after the Messiah being cut off and the the last seven still hasn't happened. Now we can look at that through history. They couldn't have done that, of course. They wouldn't have known. And they still, I mean, we still don't know when the 70th week is is, uh, going to happen, but we know it's going to happen because the first 69 did. So the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. I'm going to take a quick little note here. There's a growing movement that believes that the Antichrist will be a Muslim and that the the eschatological kingdom will be an Islamic kingdom or a primarily Islamic kingdom or something along those lines. You know, we have to be careful looking at the newspaper and looking at Bible prophecy. We don't know the details, but here's one thing I think we can say is that the Antichrist, he will be part of the, he is the prince who is to come here, and so it's his people that destroy the city. So I think I can stay pretty assertively that it's not going to be an Islamic uh, person in the Antichrist, because it's his people that do the destroying of, it's the Roman people that did the destruction of of uh, Jerusalem and the temple back in 70 AD. So it's his people that destroyed it. So it's his people must mean that he is of Roman origin or European descent. Okay, so just want to throw that out there because that's a growing movement within our Christian evangelicalism is that the end times ruler is some Muslim person. I don't think that's the case because of this text. 
Now, continuing in verse 26, its end shall come with a flood into the end. Look at this wording, to the end. It's like this thing's just going to keep going. He doesn't give any specification. He doesn't say when the last seven's going to happen. It's just like this big time period, potentially. It could be a big time period. It fits. I think it still works. And I would contend with my friend, if it was the 70th week was fulfilled back after the days of Jesus, then what happened? <laughs> because nothing really big happened for the first seven years after Jesus died. This 70th seven, this 70th week is still future. And then that leads to the last point. The Lord has been faithful in the past and he's going to be faithful until the end. Because God was faithful and fulfilled the first 69 weeks, he will be faithful to fulfill that 70th week. What do we have in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27? We have two princes. We have Prince Messiah, that's Jesus. He was cut off and then he has nothing. He is the son of man of Daniel 7. He will one day have something but he is still has one who has nothing. When we say nothing, it's speaking of a kingdom. He doesn't have a kingdom. A lot of people say, you know, the kingdom's in our hearts and all this stuff. No, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to have something. He will rule a kingdom. This coming prince, whoever this guy is, he's not a good guy. His people destroy the temple and then he makes a covenant. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Ah, this is the reason why dispensationalists believe the beginning of the final week of Daniel's prophecy is, is inaugurated with a covenant between the Antichrist and the many. And who are the many? That would be the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jewish people. This is the end. He makes the covenant with the many for one week. And then, uh, so the beginning of the covenant is this, or the beginning of the week is the making of this strong covenant with the many. The middle of the 70th week he brings an end to sacrifice and offering, and then we have this reference to the abomination of desolation. If some believe that the abomination of desolation has already been fulfilled, that doesn't work too well, or at least in the time of Jesus, because Jesus referred to it in Matthew 24, 16 and following, because I'm really going to go late, I'm going to skip this quote. So this has to be still future, the abomination of desolation and the 70th week. The end continues until desolations um, all of the desolations are completed. Now, I want to talk about these decreed desolations. Look at what we have in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 17. Daniel 9 and verse 17. This is back in his prayer. What is desolate in Daniel 9 and verse 17? The sanctuary. The sanctuary in the city are desolate. In verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city. The city and the sanctuary are desolate. The, the angelic messenger is building off of the prayer of Daniel. And Daniel saying, Lord, look at what's been desolate. Lord, give us the temple and the city again. God says, I'm gonna. Then I'm gonna wipe it out again. And again, these desolations, there's gonna be a bunch of them until the end. What does it say at the end of chapter 9 and verse 26? Desolations are decreed. Oops, stink. one too many. Go back. What do we have in verse 27? And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. 
until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Believer, the Lord has prophesied. I went through all the detail of that very, very specific prophecy because the Lord has prophesied and it came true to the very day. Just as the Lord was faithful and the first 69 weeks were fulfilled, he is faithful and the 70th week will be fulfilled. I do not know about the trials that you're going through in your life right now, but you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to submit to his word and he wants you to live according to the precepts that he's given to you in his word. It might be painful, the, the results might be hard, but he is faithful and it will work out in the end. One way or another, it will work out in the end. The Lord is faithful. I pray that you have a bigger God as a result of a study of this prophecy. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these people in Mount Pleasant. I pray for the church here at Calvary Baptist in Mount Pleasant. I know they're in a time of transition. I pray that you'd give the pastoral search committee wisdom and guidance. I pray for the people here. I pray as they don't have a lead pastor that they would still be busy about the work of the ministry. I pray that they would love their neighbors. I pray that they would love their coworkers, the, the people that are around them. May they be known as a people of love. May they submit to you, Lord God, and what your word says for their lives. May they be obedient to your word. I pray for your people, Lord, here in, uh, at Calvary Baptist in Mount Pleasant. May they pursue truth in a culture of lies. May they pursue holiness in a culture of sin. Use these people, Lord, for your honor and glory, for your exaltation, and I pray that they will one day be saints ruling and reigning with you on high, and we might meet again at that time. In Jesus' name, amen.